Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. If you're an ambitious TA professional, you may wonder what it would be like to someday lead recruiting for a global Fortune 100 company. In this episode with Marina Lavovich of Honeywell, your curiosity is about to get satisfied. Interestingly, since this was recorded, Marina has been promoted from Global Head of TA to VP of HR Strategy and Transformation, advising and reporting directly to the CHRO. So perhaps there needs to be a follow-up conversation on that. But today, you'll hear about her journey to transform Global TA for Honeywell, and it's fascinating. So after hearing about all the complexity and critical decisions that Marina has to make every day, like team structure, technology, RPO vendors, you might need a little help getting there. That's where involvement in ATAP, the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals, and RPOA, the Recruitment Process Outsourcing Association, comes in. To build your network and prepare for leadership, go to atapglobal.org and rpoassociation.org. You'll really be glad you did. Now, on to Marina Lavovich of Honeywell. Enjoy. We really caught a big fish this time. Marina Lavovich, the Global VP of Talent Acquisition and Diversity for Honeywell Incorporated. Marina, thanks so much for joining me today from beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, Erin. This is exactly where I am today. <laughs> all right. And uh, in the middle of COVID-19, we're all spending more time at in our home locations. So we can, uh, I think, talk a little bit about that. I'm really just excited for our discussion today so that my listeners can hear from a leader who is managing TA at the scale of Honeywell, obviously a Fortune 100 global company with 115,000 employees, I think, and um, about 25,000 hires annually, at least in normal years. It's that many hires. So <laughs> interested to hear how that's changed as well. And except for a small number of hires in Latin America, you manage a fully outsourced solution. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's fully outsourced. Although in in the recent year we made some decisions to bring in house uh, the jobs, you know, which are very core and significant and senior, because we were uh, relying heavily on our vendors for executive type positions, recruitment as well, and we, because it's so important to us, and uh, we've noticed that we we have to make some changes to to enable a, a faster process and and. It's our core. So we we focus on this mainly ourselves right now in executive search. Give us a brief history of your career, which uh, I think started in Minsk, mm -hmm. Belarus. Yeah. I have to use all my diction to be able to say that clearly. <laughs> Minsk, Belarus. And that was uh, it was many years ago. <laughs> and so in this is where I was born and and I was where I grew up and went to school for those you know who may not necessarily orient themselves very well in Eastern Europe. So this is right on the tip of Russia, uh, lying to the west and a small country in between Poland and Russia. And uh, I was born there and I grew up there and I went to school there. As a kid, I traveled a lot with my parents who were coaches and uh, brought teams to all sorts of championships nationally, internationally. And so I, I lived in a suitcase for 
um, you know, as I was growing up as a child, when I was approaching the end of my high school, so I thought that um, I like to study foreign languages and I had a dream to become an interpreter because I wanted to be comfortable communicating with people as I go different places. And back then, in, in the way I live, people didn't really speak foreign languages at all. Not a lot. So that was um, an interesting gig that I was thinking about. So I got in a university and started studying foreign languages. And, and I realized halfway through that I want something more. So I did my business degree as soon as I finished my school. And in the, in the interim, I was taking all sorts of jobs, you know, uh, to translate and interpret for businessmen, for you know, government, uh, work for the American Business Center. And uh, I ended up being hired by McDonald's, who was entering the market. And that was the times when they expanded their business in Eastern Europe. I ended up in HR. And this is how my HR career began. Several years, they had very ambitious, big plans. And it was a little bit of a wild west because the 90s in that part of the world were very exciting. You know, everything was changing. A lot of foreign investment flocked in, in, in the markets and we had great jobs and, and interesting, uh, you know, opportunities. I worked for, for them for a couple of years in Belarus and then they asked me to move to the Ukraine, which happened to be a more challenging and bigger market. And so I led the HR function there. Uh, and then we ended up moving to Canada with my husband who worked for Ford uh, Motor Company and, and we, we moved to Toronto and lived in Canada for 10 years. And, and this is where I started working for Honeywell. Honeywell uh, relocated me to New Jersey. This is where our headquarters was. And um, just last year, we moved to, to Charlotte. We moved our headquarters from New Jersey to, to North Carolina. And this is where I am. And so I've been in human resources uh, all those years, pretty much touched every function in HR. And um, currently lead the talent acquisition and diversity for our company. It's been about a year and a half now, almost two years that I've been in this role. And it's, I could tell you that it's probably is one of the most challenging and busiest assignments I've ever had. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, I can imagine. The Honeywell strategy is one of uh, typically centers of excellence. Am I right about that? And, and so your diversified HR experience has really taken you to a stop in a number of different functions as you have led the both insourced and outsourced versions of those like compensation, benefits, and others. Is that the strategy that they employ? And, and is that why you've been in so many different functions in your career there? Yeah, we have a, a pretty structured HR operating model in, in human resources here at Honeywell. So we, we operate a large HR shared services organization, you know, a number of COEs, the centers of excellence, you know, including comp and ban and talent acquisition and talent management, labor and employer relations. And then we have majority of our HR folks are generalists. And so they support the business. And this is why COEs and HR services are in place to help them, support them with the center of excellence related work and, and administration type of work so that they could focus on supporting the business on strategic initiatives and managing talent in the business space at sites in countries and regions. Talent acquisition leadership is your most recent stop in that long career of a number of functions in leadership, but you're saying that it's it's one of the most challenging. Give my listeners an idea of this, the size and scope of your role. Uh, quantify for us the number of business units, geographies, size of the team, how many hires. A lot of our roles here are pretty complex just because due to the nature of, of, of our company. And so Honeywell employs about 115,000 people globally. We operate pretty much in every country of the world. And it's a, it's a pretty diverse organization. So we do have five large lines of business. 
we operate five strategic business groups. And within each strategic business group, you know, you have, uh, you know, sublines of business, so to speak, with strategic business units. We, we exist as one company and, and everybody works in sync with one another. However, businesses are very different. So the range of our solutions and products, you know, is pretty broad. So we work in, in the aerospace industry and performance materials and technologies. We deal with buildings, solutions, safety products. And most recently, we formed a new business enterprise, which is called Connected Business Enterprises, is enabling our pivot into the technology space. So it's pretty diverse. So if you could think about acquisition of talent, we acquire a wide range of skills and and talent types across the world, pretty much in every single country. So it's it's vast. It's it's diverse. From the volume standpoint, it's a large organization. Uh, we hire over 20,000 people a year. It doesn't even include our contingent workforce. We, we deal with uh, different types of talent, so, you know, ranging from senior leadership positions and mid-management, a wide mix of professional jobs, entry-level jobs. We partner with a large number of universities to bring in the entry-level early career talent. So it's, it's pretty diverse. And challenging indeed. And Marina, what impact has the business seen from the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, as everybody, I think we're affected in different ways. And so some of our businesses have seen a bit of an impact and a slowdown. Other sides of our business actually are growing. And so as all of this is transpiring and evolving, so what we're doing as a company is we're trying to to find the new growth areas and verticals for growth. So we're, we're opening new lines of business. We're ramping up uh, those businesses where we see a lot of opportunity to, in the current economic conditions, for example, you know, protective equipment and appliances, you know, masks and, uh, and other types of protective equipment in our safety productivity solutions business. So this place has been busy. So we've been ramping up factories around the world and, and supplying these badly needed types of equipment and devices to, to all sorts of industries. You know, we see, you know, opportunities in facility management, building space, building solutions, healthcare verticals, businesses such as, you know, aerospace related or oil and gas related. They, they see some, some slowdown, although they're trying to, to also creatively address the opportunity they have. So everybody is affected slightly differently, but as a company, you know, we're trying to pull it all together and just continue on the course of growth and, you know, and figuring out the new opportunities and pivoting into, into those places. Yeah. And especially as I think about your legacy of being an organization that has always really been committed to internal hiring, how has that changed? Because, you know, all organizations are trying to keep their employees safe, keep them from having to be laid off and uh, yet respond in some cases to increased demand, as you just described. So, you know, I think you normally hire between 30 and 35 and 40 percent of your your uh, new fills from internal employees. Has that changed? Has it increased or decreased? Yeah, that's been our um, common mix. Uh, I would say we've been about 35 to 40 percent hiring internally. It went up a little bit. So I would say we're shifting a bit the focus on internals, but we did not close the external hiring. 
it is still happening and we're hiring a, a, a number of positions externally. Obviously, in places where we have to rapidly ramp up and we're local, external hiring is prevalent. However, we do maximize the internal hiring process right now for all of the open positions as much as possible, especially if we need to redeploy some of our employees you know, from places which do not require as many. And so we're trying to shift them as, as a priority to, to places where you know, the jobs are critical and, and urgent. Outsourcing is uh, a topic on most of my podcasts. I have a number of listeners who are leaders who have thought of outsourcing or are considering it, and they always want honest advice from people who have already uh, worked through those uh, kinds of decisions. So the decision to outsource a good portion of the hiring at Honeywell was, I think, made some years ago, and you, you inherited those vendor relationships. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And so once you got into the role, how, how did you assess those vendors? What was your viewpoint on, on how best to tell if they were doing the right job? I think all, all companies eventually face decision points, you know, across many types of functions, whether, you know, they buy services or they make them uh, and make them their own. And so insourcing, outsourcing, is all, it's, it's just a consideration that you always have to make, you know, when, when you run any type of, any type of service. And um, I guess you, you look at all the pros and cons and where you can get the best value, you know, the best cost and, you know, what makes sense for, for different, I guess, business scenarios and situations. Obviously, you want to, to evaluate the current state. What we found is in, in some places, it was working okay in some places it wasn't. So it almost turned a little bit into a, a bit of a transactional service and recruitment is meant to be very engaged. It, it's it's important for the business, right? Because talent capital is is the enabler for your business growth. And I firmly believe that the moment in time when you uh, make a hiring decision is extremely pivotal. It guarantees a lot of the future success or determines a lot of future success if you make the right hiring decision. So I think we when we looked at the current state when I joined, so the, the question was on the table, do we remain outsourced or do we do anything else? Well, we're complex. We, we're a large organization. We operate in many countries. We hire a lot of people. So we need a lot of power to recruit, to, to bring such a, a vast business in-house is, is a big undertaking. And, and sometimes it's not actually necessary. So we started segmenting the, the scope of recruitment on what's, what's not working. What is working? Why is it not working? Why is it working? What's important to us that we need to prioritize? Prioritizing the layers of jobs uh, based on how successful we were. We were running our recruitment services. You know, we've quickly made some decisions that our senior positions, we like to, to try to, to recruit for ourselves. And we brought executive search in-house to a large degree, not all of it. It's impossible to probably bring all of it in, but most of it, and we formed our internal executive search team and it's, it's working well. The rest of the recruitment, the majority of the volume is we started making an assessment across the world and we found that our footprint was too wide. How it works with suppliers is the successful service is, is based on a successful partnership and a very strong operating system to manage their process. We've always had a process that we've run, but we found opportunities to improve. Opportunities to improve, you know, our success metrics, our governance, our cadence of interaction on the operating side. On the partnership side, we thought that we need to get closer to each other, right? And so it, it was just too business oriented. 
the partnership. And in the recruitment business, you are successful when you know what you're doing, when you know the business, when you have a great relationship with, you know, the business representatives. And we addressed that opportunity by evaluating the market, evaluating our current providers. And we started partnering with them together to just uh, drive a, a number of improvements to, to get them closer to the business and resetting the entire operation system and governance in how we interact. And I think we've achieved quite, quite a bit of success by making those decisions and realignments. We also found that in some parts of the world, our solution just doesn't make sense. In South America, we just didn't find, you know, the right footprint that would serve our purpose. And we brought that in-house. But in other places, the footprint was optimized and maximized. And we are now closely partnering with our top vendors to just continuously improve our service and uh, drive it to a point where, you know, recruitment has to happen proactively. So where everybody, we jointly with our partners are able to anticipate the needs of the business so that we can prepare talent mm-hmm. for entering the jobs instead of acting reactively. Right. So we like to be ahead of it. As, and that's a huge, it's a huge undertaking. We're not through the woods yet, but we're working on it. I think what you're describing too is something that I hear from a lot of talent acquisition leaders, and that is the decision to outsource means that I as a leader need to wa- to manage it closely so that it doesn't devolve into a we versus they. And that close association is, I think, what you're, what you're going for. How have you organized your internal team to manage that? How should we think about those relationships, both in country and at a corporate level? So the internal team is organized in a way where you need to have the close interaction with the business so that there's a, an appropriate and effective, you know, alignment and interface with the business uh, environment, just so that we understand everything what has to happen and is happening in the business as far as business development and, and business needs. And then on the flip side, we formed the delivery of talent acquisition, i.e., people who are staying close to the actual operation of recruitment. And so, by having those two groups partnering together. So you are, we're trying to strike that balance where we have visibility into the business space, where we could focus on initiatives, internal talent mobility, you know, visibility to anything which is coming down the pike, which is new, mm-hmm. and you need to um, strategize for the business to determine the right approach. And we could sit at the table and, and, and have uh, collaborate with the business over the right decisions where and how to recruit. And then, and, and these people are not distracted from those activities. Whereas on the flip side, the delivery people, they are responsible for close partnership with suppliers, making sure we're staying on SLAs, we're running the marketing campaigns, we are with Swiss and talent proactively, we're building pools, we have technologies in place which are functioning properly, we have continuous improvement happening every day. So, so these two groups operate together. And, and so they are across the world everywhere. So they're structured by region. And at the same time, they, they, the business partners are, they sit in the business. And, and so all of that is synced up through our operating system. We meet con- consistently, continuously, all the time, you know, and, and have line of sight to this both areas. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like a matrix. So if I'm one of your, for example, business unit talent acquisition leaders, but I have needs for leaders in a bunch of different countries, Am I interfacing with multiple RPOs to get that recruiting done for the business unit that I oversee? 
We are not. We want one RPO. We have multiple RPOs, you're right. And we've made that assessment based on a number of you know, assumptions and facts because we wanted to get to the best value we could possibly get to. And because recruitment is so geographically driven, so you want to make sure you get the best offering that would allow you to, to the talent, which is the best in, in a particular space. We hire predominantly local people. And so, yes, we do have uh, a number of RPUs in geographies. We have five globally. However, you being a business partner and sitting, let's say, in the United States and being aligned to a business unit, you don't necessarily need to interact with an RPO in Asia. If you're recruiting in Asia, you do have a representative who is your business partner in town acquisition in Asia. And that mm-hmm. person is your conduit into the delivery space or RPO space locally to fulfill your needs, right? So they understand the strategy, they understand the demand, they understand the priorities, and they on the ground work with the delivery group that runs the RPO to make sure everything happens for you. But the standards by which we operate and how we hold all our peers accountable are all global. So we are all on the same page as far as how we want to drive recruitment, how we measure success. We communicate with all our peers together on a regular basis all the time together. Everybody comes together and communicates and shares updates, results, progress, statuses. So there's quite a, a bit of transparency, but you're right. It's a matrix. And so Honeywell is a matrix. Everything is a matrix here. Yep. Yep. And so and it's an effort to run the matrix. But uh, it's it's very hard to to operate differently. So you need to be comfortable in the matrix and and, and managing all of that. Right, it's an effort. So we we, we make it an effort to make it all work. Super interesting, um, and I appreciate you going through that because there are a lot of leaders who do not have to manage on a uh, truly global basis. And, and that is definitely your challenge. So appreciate that detail. SLAs are always important, especially in a numbers-driven organization like Honeywell. What are your favorite SLAs? Or maybe what would be the you know top one or two things that you measure so that you know if recruiting is going well? We're balancing two things. We're balancing speed and quality always. And I think we were a bit more over-indexed on speed all the time. And we're not by all means, we're not trying to affect that. So we want to drive speed actually down to zero pretty much on, on time to fail. So right now, I guess my favorite or I, I care more about is quality. So quality of talent is important. So I care about bringing in, you know, the talent, which is diverse and, and of high quality and able to fit in the role and hit the road right in from day one. So Honeywell is high performance culture and is, is a matrix and is complex. And so bringing in uh, the right quality of talent who is able to perform at a high level in this culture is crucially important for our business. So that's why we are now focused on any performance indicator that could lead us to better quality of talent. And how do you measure that? Is is do you rely on your RPOs to measure it for you, or is that an internal measurement? Uh, well, we we determine it jointly with with everybody, with our business stakeholders, and uh, everybody who is part of the the delivery process. And so there are different means how you measure it. So you want to start from the very beginning and measure the quality of your income and funnel and, and candidate quality and quality at each step along the way until you're on board. And then once you bring the talent in, their performance and their longevity and 
you know, will determine the success rate and the achievements, right? So we're looking at new hire attrition and performance of the mm-hmm. incoming talent and then further data analytics that tells us the story or how people perform. We need to do that better and better, right? So this is something which is evolving for us. So we're spending more time on this type of analysis so that we can get more insights into what drives good performance and adjustment in in the organizational culture so that we can learn from this and apply this in our selection process and hiring process to continue bringing in better talent. Well, it's certainly the holy grail for most HR executives to figure out the right combo of qualitative and quantitative measures, right, to, Mm -hmm. to get to that quality metric. If you're a regular listener, you know that I often ask my guests about what they're loving in TA technology these days. And I'm back here with Josh Zwain of Paradox, the makers of Olivia, the conversational AI solution. On one of my last podcasts, the head of TA I was talking to said she still needs convincing when it comes to conversational AI being a a, a viable tool for her team. What do you say to TA leaders who are still a little skeptical? Probably the question you get is, does it remove the human element? And I'd actually like push back on that a little bit and say... Um, it's not very human right now when when candidates get ghosted or, you know, they don't get questions answered or they fall into some black hole. So, you know, really, we try to set out to solve the problem of, you know, where does it make sense to apply technology to make the experience better? And where should humans still be involved? And how do we how do we make those humans more effective at their jobs? We don't view this as a replacement for recruiters. Um, we view it as a as a tool to make these recruiters more effective at their jobs and, you know, frankly, to get them out from behind the computer screen and talking to people again. How else can my listeners connect with Paradox? Sure. So we built an actual uh, demo experience. If anybody wants to test it out, they can text Big Fish to 25,000 on their on their cell phone. It's not a full Olivia experience. I think it's an intro. And it's a gateway and it's, it's the start of a conversation. All right. And I appreciate the Big Fish connection. Great to talk to you as always. And we'll be in touch. So, Marina, candidate experience is a huge topic, uh, and a number of teams seem to be using COVID-19 as a time to improve it through technology or even just training their recruiters. I'm just curious, what is the Honeywell team doing in the candidate experience area? Well, for us, the candidate experience started with, you know, when we had to focus last year on trying to better articulate ourselves, because what we found is that people just didn't know much about us as a company. And so because we do so many things and we're not necessarily, you know, front and center with the, you know, usual customer out there. So we're more B2B type of organization. And so there was not enough information. So we last year, we focused entirely on brand to tell the story. So the brand was formed and, and now we have many stories that we're able to tell. So we, we've incorporated that in our hiring process. We're not done, obviously, because that was built at a certain level. And we're seeing that um, many and many more employees in our organization are engaging in, in communicate that story so that we could just represent ourselves. And, and I think this is where that candidate experience starts because you want to associate yourself with, with something, to, to belong there and to, to be part of the culture. So that was a very crucial step that we had to take. And we've, we've, I think, completed that milestone. And right now we're trying to focus on, I guess, the next level of granularity of 
telling the story maybe in a more, you know, segmented level, you know, at the EVP level and, and people to own parts of it so that, you know, they, they can, they can get out and, and, and translate the value to, to those candidates who don't know us very well. Right now, I guess we are very focused on virtual interaction. Um, as you, as you know, I mean, everything is virtual. And so we don't have a lot of physical interaction. So we're just trying to make sure that, you know, we will leverage the, the, the tools and, and I guess the right communication means so that, you know, we, we're able to interact with candidates effectively virtually. And as we've seen recently, it's, it's working. It's, it's just a different shift. It's, 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 it's a shift uh, in, in, I guess, from, from the physical space where people are, people are used to physical interviewing here. And so we've, we've seen a lot of candidates face-to-face. And, and I guess it's always hard to, to drive change management, no matter what you do. We needed to switch more to virtual. And I think this just this environment just created that default option. So you're trying now to, uh, I guess, make that work as, as well as possible. So we, we're utilizing, obviously, the tools technology. We're piloting more digital interviewing tools, more videos. Uh, and that is bringing good benefits because it's saving everybody time. It creates a lot of flexibility. And it also allows you to structure uh, your messages and intensify your story that you're able to communicate virtually. We've had a lot of success with virtual communication and engagement with candidates for our intern onboarding process. So we, we did um, maintain all our intern arrangements for this cycle uh, in the summer, despite you know, these conditions. And uh, when when we were bringing them in, it was hard because they were intern um, students who you want to work closely with and pay attention and stay close and you virtual. So we've deployed, you know, just an extra level of uh, tools to orient them, to help them integrate um, and, you know, and, and communicate with them as frequently as possible, you know, through the virtual devices. Uh, we're piloting a couple of... Um, um, digital interviewing tools right now. Um, I guess not only with the purpose of uh, easing up the candidate experience, but or interaction rather, but more so also to structure information that we receive for the interaction, and it just a bit more consistent and structured and and helpful, you know, in decision making. So this is where we are with the candidate experience. Okay, interesting, and uh, it, it it is interesting that this is kind of moving. Honeywell into that direction. It sounds like you're trying to realize the benefits of video interviewing as well as just kind of, you know, the impetus to get it done and to get it implemented. What's your sense of who's adapting best to the the all virtual experience? Is it candidates or is it hiring managers? Or are they both, you know, sort of quasi having struggles with it or giving you feedback one way or the other? I think um, I think everybody probably is equally adapting to it, and it, it probably is a bit personal to some degree. I think this condition just created the environment of just just getting used to it and and yeah, and just get over it. <laughs> and it t- taking, um, uh, basically, taking away all the objections that people yeah, have talked about. Yeah, I think maybe for yeah for leaders, maybe it's a bit maybe harder to just because they they need to 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 stay together and close to the people and, and including candidates and encourage engagement. And so you want to, you know, promote being on camera a little more often. And um, so you can have some visual contact uh, 
because it's people haven't seen each other for a long time now. Maybe the burden is a bit more on on, on the leadership and, and managers. Although, on the other hand, I see that in a selection interviewing process, that creates a lot of efficiency for them because they they do less planning, they spend less time because they just really cut this whole time on you know logistics of uh, you know physical presence, maybe even traveling somewhere. Um, for candidates, for sure, they don't need to travel. What a concept! Efficiency. <laughs> awesome. And and to be honest, I I don't really see the difference because video is extremely effective. It's just that maybe some people are just not used to be on camera a lot. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, like everything, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. So hopefully that will literally be the sea change yeah. toward uh, virtual um, recruitment processes. So what I hear you saying on candidate experience is it started with branding and marketing and then it's a matter of pivoting your tools and processes to, you know, do what's necessary right now, but also making that fit into the whole candidate experience. H- has your team ever applied for the the Candy Award, the, the Talent Board's uh, Candy Award, to get the benchmarking data, or is that a, a thing in the future for you? We have not, but we're thinking about it, and we should. Last year, as I said, we, we had work to do, and so we, we deployed the brand, and then we, we had to look at some of our systems to just put some uh, better, I guess, foundational elements in place when candidates go through the application process, when they submit the information, when they learn about the company, when they interact with um, various people on the job, about the job. And right. so we deployed our TRM system. As of this January, we've improved our career sites. We're working to improve the, the selection process, logistics, and I guess onboarding. I think it's time we should benchmark ourselves and apply for that. Um, we haven't done that, but we definitely will need to do it. Maybe just a tiny little shout out to the friends at the talent board. It's what's so great about it is you don't have to apply to win at first. You can just apply to get the data and the data ends up being really, really valuable. Um, okay. So general question here, what's the hardest part of leading recruiting globally? And then what's the easiest in your opinion? I think the hardest part, uh, which still exists, is to get everybody aligned. What do we need um, and what might we need? So I think we you can get anything set up, find great recruiters. Um, you can create great systems. But I think because this area is still missing a lot of data-driven um, intelligence that would drive decisions of selection, you have to align people. And so, and that's usually, and because several several parties are involved all the time, that probably is the most challenging part. So you got to have very clear rules, consistent structure, process, engagement, qualified people for it, trust. And because, you know, sometimes, you know, the decision is to be made by one, two, three, several decision makers. So that usually is probably the the most difficult thing because you got to ensure alignment on, on all steps in the process. That usually is pretty exhausting. <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're like me, you're really impatient, right? You sort of feel like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and not everybody moves at that speed. I think it's a little bit of what makes a great recruiting leader. You're trying to balance, you know, you're trying to balance a lot of different things, right? You meet everybody's expectations that it's best. You want to be fast. You want to be, 
you know, uh, precise with, um, you know, the quality of talent, with, you know, what the talent has to offer when, when we hire them. And at the same time, you want to create experience. And so there's are many balls to juggle in the air, you know, to get to that final point you're trying to get. And, and you're dependent on decision makers who, who are working this material with you. And, and so sometimes it becomes a bit frustrating. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And on the other side, what's the easiest part of managing globally? Well, the easiest part is the cool stuff. It's this, this is interesting. This is a very interesting area because this area is hugely pivotal for the business and impactful for the business. It's, it, it just helps you to drive your business through the right people you go find. And so you got to love it. You got to love to recruit. You have to love to deal with people, go look for them, find them. I think that the, the fun part about it is, you know, coming up with, you know, ideas and tools and interesting ways to find people and attract them. But I think the, the coolest part about it is really is the touch base with the candidate. It's, it's my favorite part when I, you know, get to, to talk to, you know, candidates and interact with them. Right. I agree. It's mission critical. Literally recruiting is mission critical for all organizations. And that's what uh, I think what jazzes most people who, who dedicate their career to it. So, you know, let's talk about diversity. That's a part of your role as well. And especially in the area of Black Lives Matter, of, you know, definitely in the U.S., some um, racial uh, unrest, some uh, issues we're trying to sort through. And then obviously you have a global role and, and uh, injustice goes beyond the U.S. borders for sure. Your CEO, Darius Adamchek, has been very vocal about Honeywell's position. I think I read a, a pretty long statement recently. I think it was in June. He said, we will never tolerate racism at Honeywell, fully embracing the principles of inclusion and diversity and treating all employees with the utmost respect every day are requirements for working here. If you can't do this, you don't belong at Honeywell. So that's pretty strong words. And he goes on to list all the ways that Honeywell was already fostering diversity, as well as several new commitments. So what does that mean for your role? Are you spending more time leading new diversity efforts because of what's going on in the world? Or tell us, how, how does all that get done at Honeywell? So I do have responsibility for diversity. It is, it is within my organization, but diversity cannot be managed by just a dedicated group of people. Diversity is a, is a very broad matter. And so it, it, it resides within the DNA of the company. And so it, ha- it, it sort of penetrates you know, for the whole culture and, and, and is managed, I guess, or owned by pretty much everybody. At Honeywell, it is one of the three foundational principles. We have three principles that we all follow, integrity and compliance, workplace respect and diversity and inclusion. And so it sits in, in, in kind of in the backbone. And so it's owned by leaders. Uh, it's owned by the CEO who believes in this. And we all are, uh, are operating based on them. So this is where it starts. It's, it's within, we're trying to, to instill it in our behaviors and it's just a, a standard norm how we treat each other. So I guess that's sort of the, the first point. Um, secondly is we are a very global organization. So we, we operate everywhere in pretty much every single country. We work locally. We work with local employees. We work with local businesses. We work with local customers. So that kind of makes us already very diverse. And we move a lot of people around. 
mobility is is a huge deal at Hayim. Yeah, it actually helps you move your career, and it's it's very open and encouraged. So people are encouraged to move for their careers and new opportunities within the organization because we want to grow our talent, and we want to develop our talent, and give them challenges and 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 great opportunities to thrive and. So when you start moving this around, move talent around and attract diverse talent all over the world, this this is this is just you know the great environment. Just be diverse and 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 feel comfortable as a diverse employee. So so I guess this is where we stand. How we're driving it, we still I guess want to just continue focusing on it and. We drive across multiple avenues, so we definitely pay attention to pay a lot of attention to diversity on the acquisition side. It's across the whole range, right? So we 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 incorporate it in in our recruitment process. We we incorporate it in you know in, in a way where we recruit, how we source talent. We're trying to bring as much of diversity in in the organization as possible because you just bring different perspectives and different backgrounds, and it helps you. To generate different ideas and be successful, and 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 the Honeywell's culture, like I said earlier, um, is very driven by performance results. So you you push yourself every day here to be better, to be better every minute, every every moment, to to drive continuous improvement, to come up with new ideas, to find new opportunities, to develop new products. When when that happens, it it it, it just marries to diversity one hundred percent. Is uh, you you. Through diversity, you 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 perform better, you create better ideas, and you collaborate. So so this is where it says. Now, obviously, you have some very tangible tools. You know, across our processes, we manage diversity of select uh, when we hire. So we want to make sure that every opening, you know, has diversity on slate. And so you have different, you know, candidates. They, they and we measure that. We, we we measure that, and we feel that you know if you measure that upstream, if you source diversity, if you monitor diversity of slate, that actually brings you great results at the end. On the talent management side, we pay attention to this in our development programs, in our succession plans, in in, in our nominations for, for leadership development. Uh, we do have you know several programs which uh, deal with career advancement for diversity groups, and we're trying to expand that. You know, to, to bring more diversity groups into, uh, I guess, career development portfolio. Community relations is, is another big pillar. We certainly have, you know, a, a, a strategy, how we, how we deal with community. But part of that strategy is underrepresented minority groups and STEM education. Uh, so those are the two big areas of focus. We operate in, we, we, we try to deepen community relations, you know, places where we have, you know, hubs and partnerships. And, and another area is obviously communication and branding. So we, we, we're watching uh, or paying attention to diversity as we interact, you know, with, with the organization and employees on, on all matters. So diversity just needs to be incorporated in all of that. What we're focused on immediately right now is we're trying to uh, structure and broaden a bit our employee networks. So they do exist. We have them, but we we thought that uh, you know there could be some opportunities just to elevate uh, this area a little bit and create a bit more best practice sharing across the board and engagement of employees. As we've noticed with the recent events, uh, we 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 held a number of listening sessions, for example, with our black employees. Uh, one of the messages we heard is that sometimes we don't communicate enough about what we do. 
in the, in the diversity area. And so uh, we're now thinking about how do we how do we engage employees a bit more, not just through you know something that we can publish and and tell people what we've done, rather engage them and, and make you know the, the activities that you know we're driving a bit more visible. We can collect more ideas and and recommendations from um, from our diversity from diverse employees on, on what you do, where you go, and and add value, et cetera. So this is where we stand. Okay. So what I'm hearing is the diversity is really embedded in the culture as opposed to being a program or a series of programs. It is, but I think it's both, right? So it's, it, it, it is embedded. It has to be, it, it is part of who we are. On the other hand, you know, we manage a, a number of programs because we have to, <laughs> um, to just continuously improve, exactly improve it and, 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 and enhance it and, and, and look for opportunities. Opportunities always exist. Um, and so uh, we, we do have, you know, the operating system, leaders own diversity. We, we are trying to implement more governance through, like I said, this extra engagement vehicles, right? So employee networks and IND councils across the company so that there's just a bit more, I guess, structured communication around it. And uh, I love your point about that part of diversity, especially in a truly global organization, is moving people around so that you get people with different backgrounds and ideas who end up being in a city that they didn't grow up in to be able to, you know, help the rest of the culture. Uh, I feel like there's so much there. We could have a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> I wish we had time to dive yeah. into it. That is a big um, topic, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, just, just also maybe just connect the dots from a talent acquisition leadership perspective. You know, I've talked to a number of leaders who have themselves moved from one city to the other in order to take a new opportunity or to, to grow their career within their company. And uh, I, I don't, uh, I mean, obviously, you've done that a number of times. I have as well. I, I I don't know if that is on the radar of many young leaders today or people who aspire to be a talent acquisition leader in the area of COVID-19. Are we going to end up compromising that? People are going to just stay put in order to stay safe and therefore maybe miss the opportunity to get a different perspective by moving to a new city or being in a new, completely new country when they're growing their careers? What do you think? I think it'll be interesting to see what will happen. I still think it's temporary. Human beings are curious by nature, right? And so <laughs> people like to travel and they want to travel. And they, they, they it's, it's just, I think, part of who we are. And it's not only for business, but for different other purposes. You want to you go and explore and see new places. And what it does, it creates, it just expands your outlook and creates more growth. Companies would still, I mean, it, maybe the virtual environment will expand. For sure, in in way it makes sense. You know, at the end of the day, you would still you know have to interact with customers, run sites, collaborate with teams, and will still have some physical attachment to it. So you, <laughs> you would want to be somewhere. I think I think mobility was still happening because businesses you know are clustered in some places, and you you want to be close to a group of individuals you know who you who you operate with. Marina, you've achieved a lot in your career. Uh, I'm just curious to know, what are you most proud of as an executive, as a woman, where you are today? What wh- what are you most proud of? I guess I'm, I'm proud of, of what I've achieved, the people I've um, worked with and met in my career path. You know, I've been, I've been lucky and blessed to have great leaders on my way who, 
you know, put faith in me and gave me the opportunity and gave me a challenge, you know, provided, you know, direction, autonomy along the way. And I guess this, this is to sum it up. <laughs> it happens for people, right? So you, you run into different people on your way and um, they help you succeed. And, and then I guess as sort of just to build out, they, I think I've really been lucky with, you know, the type of work I got involved in and the type of challenge they gave me to solve and that that aligned with my aspirations to go find out and improve and resolve um, certain things or construct certain things, which I enjoyed dealing with. And I think the opportunity to move around and work in four countries with totally different genders and individual, but still, I guess I, I gravitate towards you know, areas which buy a lot of creativity and uh, improvement and change where there's, there's something that we need to bring to the next level. Um, I just feel I enjoy working things like that and, and I've been lucky to find them. <laughs> right. And my sense is that you're very operational as well. So that seems to be a good fit in a culture like Honeywell. No matter what you do, there's always the execution piece, which is attached to it. So you have to get things done. And, 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 and to me, this is operational. You have to operate things. You have to implement them. So without that, I mean, it's great to have ideas and, you know, and, and visions and strategies, but it, but at the same time, you got to operate things. So, yes, I do enjoy that element as well. Okay. So what's next for you? I don't know. I, I just... Uh, <laughs> I just uh, keep doing what I'm doing. This place I'm in right now is we, we, we've started a lot of change and, and we've started a lot of interesting projects here at Honeywell and in, in, in the talent acquisition space. I still think that, not necessarily here, but I think this, this whole talent acquisition space is a bit stuck in the past. And, and, and there are so many new things that we can deploy to help you know, make talent decisions much more intelligently through for data, for science, for interpretation of, of more, more data-based, uh, I guess, uh, analytics. And, uh, and this is what we're after. So we, there's plenty to innovate. Uh, there's here, work so, to do, is what I hear. And being impatient, even being impatient, I can't, I just can't wait to get through all of this. Right. So so I think I think we just have a lot of opportunity to innovate. And, and that's what we have to. But when I think about your current expertise in talent acquisition and then previously you oversaw uh, compensation benefits, I mean, you're, you really have an interesting portfolio of functions underneath the HR umbrella that you're you you were becoming an expert in. So I just wonder, are you sort of preparing for a more uh, a bigger role that oversees all the functions of HR? Uh, I don't think I ever think about that. So I think how I think about the career is I, I certainly sit in HR and, and so and I like how HR at Honeywell is is challenged to be a business partner. So we we, we work closely with the business, we, we support the business, and, and so we're part of it. So this is a great place to be. So being here and, and being a business partner, it doesn't matter what you do within human resources. You know, as long as, you know, you, you, you're working in an area which, which helps at 
value to helping the business succeed, grow, transform, pivot, whatever that is. So it's great. And so I guess I think about it through applying myself just on, in a certain area, which just has that, you know, impactful opportunity um, to help support the business. What it is, it really is, doesn't matter for me. I like to do everything as, as long as it has to do with preparing talent for being successful as an organization. Yeah. And my guess is you, you just, you crave challenge and impact and uh, plenty of that at Honeywell, it sounds like. Yes, a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> good. I'm just curious, Marina, is there a uh, particularly difficult challenge or a, maybe even a failure you'd be willing to share? You know, I, I think uh, future leaders often look at existing leaders and think it's just a straight line upward and they always were good at what they did. And that what they don't see is that there might have been some bumps along the way. Is what what could you share as an example of what you've learned specifically um, to help them avoid a pitfall? Yeah, I think there are always you know bumps. It's it's every day is a bump. <laughs> I don't necessarily think about things as 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 failure. It sort of demotivates you right away, and so you just mm-hmm. want to think about it as an opportunity. And so there are tasks and, and challenges that sometimes are hugely complex. You, you get a little scared of, you know, how, how are we going to solve it? It's like a brain-bending um, exercise where sometimes you don't you know, I'm sure where to go. So I think for me, the most difficult moments are when we have a concept and then we're trying to maybe operationalize it or make it happen to make sure that, you know, it hits the mark. And, and so these are the moments when you really need to dedicate a lot of energy and time and, and the right resources have to come in uh, just to make sure that it's, it's you know, we're, we're just putting together the right plan. And, and, and we don't go too far maybe in, in the wrong direction. <laughs> so you, yeah. you just want to have that rigor of, of checking in all the time to, to make sure that, you know, you're just steering in the right way. But even if you, if you slightly deviated, I guess, from the course, that's still okay. Cause you, you just, you, you, you're still exploring, you're trying to, you're trying to get to where you're trying to get. Did I fail? I think I did. I mean, everybody fails. So everybody fails along the way. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't come up with um, a certain thing, but you know, I, I definitely, but it sounds like you're, you're kind of, uh, in general, kind of referring back to that go slow to go fast or the, you know, the patience thing or the checking in and change management. Is yeah. It's it, your Achilles heel. Yeah. I like, I guess, change management. I like to go fast. So I think for me, the things to watch is, is go fast, but bring people along and, and make sure that, you know, everybody is calibrated. We're doing the right thing. Um, at the same time, yeah, I'm trying to balance it with a degree of risk because sometimes, you know, if you're too risk averse, then innovation is not going to happen. So I, I still tend to be, I guess, more on the risk side. Marina, what advice would you give 24-year-old Marina? Anything that you now know that you wish you'd known then? I guess I, I don't think I've changed I've changed a lot as far as the, you know, the way I, I work or think. I think at the beginning of your career, 
you probably hesitate more than you hesitate now. The degree of confidence is, is probably not there, right? As you develop professionally and make business decisions and try to make your first steps. And so I would say maybe if I were to give any advice, just not to hesitate and, <laughs> and believe in yourself and be more confident and, you know, and just keep going at opportunities because I was going at them and put my mind to it and, and, and getting it done. And so I would say, just, just, yeah, just keep going at it. <laughs> put your mind to it, believe in it and don't hesitate. So check, but don't hesitate. Just the confidence has to be there. Gotta be confident in, in what you believe and what you're doing. I love that advice. And, um, I think everybody needs to hear it con- constantly because uh, the world will beat you down and a little confidence to soldier on goes a long way. So, well, Marina, that is all the time we have and you have been so forthcoming with insights and thank you so much for the time that we have spent together here. A- any final advice, anything that you would say is, uh, you know, other than the confidence point, which is a uh, a great one. A- anything else you would tell aspiring talent acquisition leaders uh, about what it's like to really stand in your shoes? Have a can-do it attitude. Go with opportunities. Believe in yourself. I think if if you in talent acquisition, the advice for all of us I would give is we have to innovate more in this space. We tend to do things the same way, and um, we we're too subjective in in how we look for talent and, and select talent. It, it's, there still is a lot of human judgment, which is absolutely important. But I think we got to be innovating this industry much faster and better because it can can be smarter from, from the technology standpoint and the tools that we can use. And so I think we, we need to, to be better innovators, more data-driven innovators to, to just create... Um, I guess, more excellence in this space and make it more contemporary. Amen. (laughs) All right. That is the best summary statement ever. Thank you so much for that. And thank you again for your time. All the best to you and to Honeywell as you change all of our lives with technology and process and do that on a global basis. And uh, again, thanks. Thank you, Erin. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com. <laughs>